Well, good morning. Thank you for joining us on this Lord's Day. Please turn in your Bible to Psalm 115. We're going to look at Psalm 115 today. And I want to begin by relating this story. When my daughters Claire and May were younger, uh, I noticed that they would imitate Brooke and I. Uh, They would feed and bathe and discipline their stuffed animals the same way that we would feed and bathe and discipline them. They would uh, pray prayers like we prayed. They would even have pretend conversations on the phone the way that they listened to us talk on the phone. And it was a a cute phenomenon that I think most parents uh, of young children have noticed at some point. Uh, It's cute. Uh, But it shows us that people are imitators. We resemble what we love or respect, either consciously or unconsciously. And today we're going to look at Psalm 115 and learn an important spiritual truth about our worship, and that is that you become like what you worship. In his book, We Become What We Worship, Gregory Beale says it this way, what you revere, you resemble either for your ruin or restoration. The fact is, God has created human beings to reflect Him, but if we don't commit ourselves to reflecting Him, we will reflect something else in creation. At the core of our being, we are imaging creatures. That's part of what it means to be made in the image of God, that we are imaging creatures, and uh, it's an inescapable part of who we are. You can't be neutral on this. You're either going to reflect your Creator and His character and His glory, or you'll reflect something else. And so, the question to ask yourself this morning as we look at Psalm 115 is, who or what do I reflect? And who or what do I worship, because over time, the two grow more and more consistently uh, together. Let's read Psalm 115 together, and I'll show you how the psalmist explains it. In Psalm 115, we read, "'Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory, because of Your loving kindness, because of Your truth. Why should the nations say, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases.'" Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. In contrast, uh, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, the small together with the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed of the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. The heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth He has given to the sons of men. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But as for us, we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forever. Praise the Lord. Well, this psalm breaks down into four sections. In verses 1 and 2, we see a noble desire on the part of the psalmist uh, to see God glorify Himself. In verses 3 through 8, the psalmist gives a contemptuous dismissal of idolatry. In verses 9 through 15, we see the psalmist's dependence 
on God's grace. And then in verses 16 through 18, you get a Hebrew doxology. Let's walk quickly through each section of this psalm. Again, in verses 1 and 2, we read, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory, because of Your loving kindness, because of Your truth. Why should the nations say, or you could say it this way, why should the Gentiles say, where now is their God? Uh, the composer Johann Sebastian Bach, uh, on a number of his uh, musical pieces, wrote the initials SDG at the bottom, and uh, George Friedrich Handel did the same thing. And uh, that was an abbreviation for a Latin term, soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. And Psalm 115 verse 1 is one of the numerous verses in the Bible that is the inspiration for that Latin saying, God alone deserves all glory. And we see a desire on the part of the psalmist for God to glorify Himself. But it's a curious thing, at the very beginning of a psalm that's all about glory, the psalmist starts with a renunciation of glory. Not to us, O Lord, not to us. Uh, we're not competing with God for glory. What you have at the very beginning of verse 1 is a renunciation of or a repentance of seeking self-glory. The essence of verses 1 and 2 really in Hebrew is this, Lord, we want Your name to be glorified because of Your unfailing love and because of the light of Your truth. But the Gentile nations around us are mocking us for believing in You. We need to be delivered from them, and we're not seeking our own glory for delivering ourselves from them. Won't You intervene to deliver us so that You would magnify Your name and Your power in the sight of the surrounding nations. That's the heart of the psalmist. He's consumed with the desire to see God's name praised and exalted and glorified. And then verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. In other words, in, a, in an Old Testament context, uh, the psalmist is saying our God is not a local deity among the polytheistic uh, pantheon of the world and all the nations. No, uh, and He's also not the amplified humanity, and the, the amplified humanity that has superhero-like qualities like the Greek and Roman gods. No, He is deity. He is the Creator of all things and the all-powerful One who does whatever He pleases. Nothing and no one can stop Him. Our God is the ruler over heaven and earth, and we could add time and space and history. But by way of contrast, the Gentiles who are mocking Israel's God, they serve idols made with their own hands. Look at verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. The idols have all the right sensory organs, either fashioned or painted onto them, but they can't do anything with them. The whole thing with idolatry is a scam. They are imaginations and the creations of men's hands. In fact, the rest of Scripture would say it's not just that idols are the work of men's hands, uh, they are also inspired by demons. They are the inspirations and lies of demons that men then fashion with their own hands. And they keep entire uh, people groups, entire cultures in spiritual slavery. They entrap entire cultures and people groups in serving something that can't deliver them 
in their hour of need. And here's the key verse of, psalm, of this psalm, uh, verse 8, those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. Those who make deaf, mute, and blind idols will themselves become deaf, mute, and blind to spiritual reality. Uh, right? The very fact that they're knowingly fashioning a god shows that they're already deep in the process of becoming spiritually deaf and blind. The heavens are telling the glory of God, right? His uh, invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen in the beauty of the creation He has made. But as idol makers look out at the cosmos, they hear, but they don't understand. They see, but they don't perceive the truth. In their idolatry, they are becoming deaf and blind to God's invitation to repent and turn to Him. And so, what verse 8 is getting at then, brothers and sisters, is what we worship. And there are a number of ways to understand worship. Uh, in the Old Testament, there's a number of verbs associated with worship. What you worship, you will serve, obey, fear, sacrifice for. In verse 8, the issue is trust, right? Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. The problem with the idolatry in verse 8 is that people who make idols trust in those idols to deliver them. But in contrast to those false gods, the psalmist exhorts his readers to trust in the true and living God. Look at verse 9. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The idols and the idolaters, I should say, are putting their hope and trust in something that is obviously untrustworthy. Idols can't deliver people. The only thing idols are capable of is doing one thing, transforming their worshipers into something like them. And that's because of this uh, spiritual rule of reality and existence that none of us can escape. Over time, you will become like the thing or person you worship. And unlike worshiping the untrustworthy idols, we choose to trust in the Lord. That's what verses 9 and 11 are about from the psalmist's point of view. And then there's this expectation that the Lord will bless all who trust in Him. In fact, there's the happy encouragement in verses 12 through 15 that God keeps track of people who trust in Him instead of putting their trust in idols. Look at verse 12. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, the small together with the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed to the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. Notice that there's not just an exhortation to trust the Lord. There is implicitly here. But there's also an expectation of blessing for all those who trust in God. He is mindful of those who cho choose to put their hope and trust in Him. In other words, He's not uh, an emotionally distant God who is uh, detached from His creation. He, he knows the exact number of hairs on your head. He keeps track of those who are seemingly insignificant as well as those who are famous, and He blesses all who fear Him. In contrast with the idols, the psalmist chooses to trust in the Lord and depend on His grace and help. And then he ends the psalm with the doxology. Now, if you're, a, if you're a mature Christian and you're used to the doxologies in the New Testament, 
What happens at the end of the psalm may not pop off the page to you like a doxology, but that's actually what it is in Hebrew. It's a, it's a Hebrew doxology, verse 16. Uh, the heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth He has given to the sons of men. Here the psalmist is drawing a cosmological map, and heaven belongs to the Lord, but ruling the earth is a, a privilege that God has delegated to mankind, right? He, and you see that with the uh, dominion mandate back in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, that God delegated to man. God made man in His own image, higher than the animals, and then delegated to man the authority to rule the birds of the air and the beasts of the field and the fish of the sea, to till the earth and, uh, uh, and to grow produce on it. And so, uh, God has given mankind the high honor of a delegated authority ruling over the earth. But then the psalmist says, verse 17, the dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But as for us, we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forever. Praise the Lord. Verse 17 is not a denial of life after death, what the writer is doing, if you look at verse 18 as well, is he's making a comparison between idolaters and those who worship Yahweh, right? Uh, we who worship the living God will continue to go on worshiping Him in the life to come, unlike those who gave themselves to lifeless idols. So, Psalm 15 really breaks down into four sections, each of which has nourishing truth for our souls, right? The psalmist begins with a noble desire to see God glorify Himself, which is one of those things that we should pray for regularly. He uh, then moves on to a denunciation of idols and then gives an exhortation to trust in the Lord, complete with an expectation that God will bless those who trust Him. And then he ends with a doxology of praise to the Maker of heaven and earth. What I'd like to do with the time that remains then, now that I've explained the passage, is I want to zero in on this spiritual dynamic that we, over time we become like what we worship. The provocative language of Psalm 115 verse 8 forces us to look at salvation from a different angle than I think we're used to as New Testament Christians. Uh, the psalmist teaches us that the, in, in this psalm, the psalmist is teaching us that the eternal destiny of our souls is not so much a matter of where we're going, but what we're becoming. In Psalm 115, salvation and damnation are a matter of what we're turning into. If you worship a deaf and blind idol, you will, spirit, you will slowly become spiritually deaf and blind yourself. If you worship a false god who's cruel, over time you will become cruel. If you worship a false god uh, who's given over to uh, sensual perversions, over time you will become addicted to sexual sins. That's the spiritual dynamic behind our worship. And if you're self-aware of what you're turning into, it illuminates what you're really worshiping. You see, you can make a public profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, and regularly attend worship services, be a member in good standing at a local church, and yet still have a heart that's far from Christ. Uh, it is possible to be spiritually deceived, right? And so, uh, you can go through life giving outward external ritualistic worship to God, but if what you're really worshiping is something else, over time, the people who live closest to you will notice that you begin to change 
uh, to become more and more like the thing that you worship. Now, the good news is that in Psalm 115 verse 8, it's really a warning, right? But the good news that we learn from the New Testament is that this same spiritual dynamic also works for good in the opposite direction, right? Uh, we're created in the image of God and are reflectors and are made to reflect His glory. And if we give ourselves to that, over time, we will reflect His moral image in an increasingly consistent way. Maybe a way you could think about this reflecting quality of being made in the image of God, like the sun and the moon, right? The sun gives off light. The moon doesn't give off any light of its own, but it reflects the light of the sun. Uh, same way with us and God. Or another way to think of it would be uh, a mirror. We're created to reflect the image of God, but in our rebellion, we've taken the mirror-like aspect of who we are, and we've pointed it at created things like money, pleasure, being a success, uh, the, the fame of our own name. Um, we've even tried to bend the mirror back in on itself to reflect ourselves back to ourselves. That's the problem we've run into. Now, back in the garden, uh, when uh, at the beginning of creation, Adam and Eve reflected God's glory. Their mirrors, if you will, the mirror-like quality of who they were, reflected Him. But in the fall, we cease to uh, reflect God, and we've pointed our mirrors all these other places. But the important thing to realize is that the mirror-like aspect of who we are didn't go away. We're still imagers. We didn't lose the mirror-like quality of our being. We just turned our mirrors to reflect the glories, the lesser glories, I would add, of creation. And when you reorient the mirror to point to Christ, the image of God that's been bent in you begins to be restored. The apostles in the New Testament explain it this way. Uh, John says, the apostle John says this in 1 John 3, "'Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is.'" We will be like Jesus. Why? Because in a future day, we will see Him exactly like He is. The Apostle Paul elaborates on this using the image, uh, uh, using the illustration that I'm using of that mirror-like quality of our being. In 1 Corinthians, he says this, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will be fully known just uh, excuse me, I will fully know Christ just as I have been fully known. Uh, even with the gift of God's Word and the illumination of the Holy Spirit, when we look at Christ, it's as if we're looking at Him in a, through, uh, through the reflection of a mirror, but in a very dimly lit room where it's hard to make out all the details. But when we finally enter into our Lord's presence and behold Him face to face in person, we will be fully like Him. Now, does that mean that there's no hope for us in the present? Well, far from it. Using this same imagery in 2 Corinthians, Paul says this about our present status, 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. 
So what goes on in our worship services and in our Bible studies and in our congregational singing to the extent that the lyrics are true, all of that that goes on uh, helps us see Christ, and the more we see of Him, the more we're shaped into His image. Now, that process is a beautiful thing, spiritually speaking, but it can seem agonizingly slow in this life. Uh, and also, but, but, but there is the promise that we move from one level of glory to another. There is progress. It's as if in this life we see Christ through a mirror, uh, His reflection in a mirror in a dimly lit room, but as we move from glory to glory, it's as if the light in the room grows and we see more and more of who He is. Now, the process is still incomplete in this life, but when we finally see Christ, we will be like Him. So if you want to become more like Jesus… Look at Him, love Him, trust Him, embrace Him, serve Him, obey Him. Those are all marks of worship that make us more and more like Him over time. So what should we say then? If, if what I'm saying is true, and this really is the spiritual dynamic, what are some applications for us from Psalm 115 verse 8? Well, as I see it, there is an important clarification, uh, a diagnostic question that we need to ask and answer. And then I have three applications. First of all, the diagnostic question. If it's true that we become like what we worship, how do we really know what we're worshiping? I mean, people can be self-deceived, right? The Pharisees in Jesus' day, they had a zeal for God, but it wasn't according to knowledge. They searched the Scriptures daily because they thought that in them they would find eternal life. But when eternal life appeared in the form of their Messiah, foretold in the Old Testament, they rejected Him, right? So they were self-deceived. And even think about Israel in Jesus' day. Israel had all the Messianic prophecies. There was uh, hundreds of thousands of sacrifices that went on in the temple over… And we know this from historians, that there was hundreds of thousands of sacrifices that went on in the temple in Jerusalem just on the weekend of Passover, um, uh, well, on the Thursday and Friday of Passover. And those were offered by millions of worshipers. Most historians estimate that the Jewish population in Israel in the first century was around two million people before the uprising where a lot of people got killed by the Romans in 66 to 70 AD. And yet, you have all these millions of people, Messianic prophecies, very religious, very spiritual, going to the synagogue, offering sacrifices in the temple. But when Messiah comes… Uh, after he's crucified, there's only 120 uh, followers of him who are hiding in fear somewhere in an upper room in Jerusalem. Those are kind of underwhelming numbers for people turning to him. So, if people can be self-deceived about what they worship, how can we be assured that we really are worshiping God? Well, in the Bible, there's a number of worship words that help us understand what it means to worship. Words like trust in, hope in, in, serve, obey, treasure, and love. What are you trusting in to deliver you? Where are you putting your hope for happiness? What do you really treasure? Who do you really love? If you can get to the bottom of those questions and answer honestly, I think it gives you a good read on what you're really worshiping in life. And then in terms of application, uh, three applications. The first is this, Psalm 115, verse 1, it begins this way, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, 
but to your name give glory. As imagers of, uh, as imagers of God who are reflectors, uh, we cannot reflect God's glory properly if we're trying to bend our mirror back in on ourselves, reflecting our own glory, right? A mirror that's bent back in on itself reflects nothing, and that's what we're doing when we give ourselves to self-glory. The glory is not for us. The moon doesn't generate its own light. It reflects the light of the sun. In the same way, we don't generate glory. God does, and we're meant to reflect His. A mirror doesn't generate its own light, right? It only reflects the light that's already in the room. Pastor Douglas Wilson explains it this way, "'Pursue the glory of your own name, and you're like a man carrying mirrors into a deep dungeon, a place with no lights, so that you might generate glory that you need not share with anyone else and that you don't have to share it because nobody wants it. You have to surrender your own desire and your own ambition for your own glory uh, if you're going to reflect the glory of God as you were created to.'" Second application, you also have to turn from false worship. That's what Psalm 115 verse 8 is all about, right? You have to turn from worshiping idols. Now, as an American Christian, I think it's possible to read this passage, and the threat of the passage is the idols that were supposedly representations of the gods of other nations that were around thousands of years ago, gods that most people in the world today aren't worshiping. And so, I think as an American Christian, you might be able to read through the passage and think, well, look, I'm I'm not going to go worship Baal. And even if I wanted to, or even if I was just curious about the worship of Baal, there's nowhere to go to see people do that anymore. So, I must be home free, right? I, I, I went to church on Sunday. I, wor- I believe in Jesus. I must be good to go according to Psalm 115. But the New Testament and even the Old Testament in Ezekiel would correct that kind of foolishness. In Ezekiel 14, God says this through the prophet, uh, then some elders of Israel came to me. This is Ezekiel speaking. They came to me and sat down before me, and the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. Should I be consulted by them at all? Therefore speak to them and tell them, thus says the Lord God, any man of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity and then comes to a prophet I, the Lord, will be brought to give an answer in the matter in view of the multitude of His idols in order to lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are estranged from Me through all their idols. The men that God confronts and the prophet Ezekiel uh, confronts here, they were not giving themselves to the worship of foreign gods. They worshiped Yahweh in the temple. And so, it would be easy to say, well, I, I don't see any idolatry going on. This is the same thing the prophets dealt with with the kings, right? It, it, if, if I'm in the king's court or if I'm the king and uh, one of the prophets comes and confronts me and says, you know, this, what you did was idolatry, it's like, well, look, what is your problem? I, I give myself to Yahweh. I don't worship the foreign gods. I, I don't have any uh, altars set up to Baal. What's your problem? And the, the, what the prophets say is, it was idolatry 
when you made a treaty with the great Assyria and looked to Assyria to save you. That was idolatry. When you looked to the great Egypt to be your protector, when you trusted in them for your safety, that was a form of idolatry. That's what the, that's what the prophets were trying to get across. And you can set up idols in your heart while still giving your uh, formal worship to the living God. This is something Jesus had to confront over and over and over in the New Testament. Uh, if you remember, when He's with the Samaritan woman, He finally gets her to the place where she wants to know about the eternal life uh, that He offers, and she's ready to receive salvation. And in that moment, Jesus says, go call your husband. And as an evangelical Christian, I'm like, why are you changing the subject? There's a Roman's road. You're the leader in a prayer of salvation. And see, what that does is that misses what Jesus is doing. And you guys know the rest of the story. You know why Jesus did this. This woman has had five husbands. The man she's living with, she's not even married to. And the reason Jesus is going down this path is because it's obvious that the allegiance and love and loyalty of her heart is having a man, having romantic love. That's what makes this woman tick. That's what she gives her loyalty and allegiance to. And that has to be dealt with before she can come to Christ in salvation. She has made an idol out of romance, right? Jesus was constantly confronting idolatry in first century Israel, and by that point, they had been cleansed of the worship of other gods uh, by the Babylonian captivity. And, and, but, and yet, uh, idolatry still persisted, but it was a kind of heart idolatry that gave itself away to other created things like romantic love in, this, in the case with the Samaritan woman. Uh, you remember also the rich young ruler, right? Jesus comes to the rich young ruler, uh, or actually the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. He asks Jesus, what must I do to obtain eternal life? Jesus gives him the law, and this man is so deluded, he actually thinks he's kept all the commandments since he was a youth. Uh, and, but he still senses that something is missing. Something still doesn't feel right. And so he tells Jesus, what am I lacking? He asks Jesus, what am I lacking? And Jesus says to him, uh, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And again, what do we do with the story? Well, evangelical Christians like me, we get all worked up trying to explain, well, not everybody who comes to Jesus has to sell all their possessions, and if we start teaching that, it's like a kind of work salvation that denies salvation by grace alone through faith and alone in Christ alone, and we make it this big problem that isn't a problem because we're misunderstanding what Jesus is doing. Jesus is launching a cruise missile at the command and control center of this man's life. He has a prestigious position in life, and a lot of money, he's comfortable, and Jesus is asking him to give that up and come follow him in an itinerant, you know, come follow the itinerant rabbi. That's what he's asking this man to do. And the man, you know the story, he doesn't do it because he loves the prestigious and comfortable life he's carved out for himself more than his willingness to obey Jesus when Jesus says, come follow me. Um, and so, what's going on is the rich young ruler has made an idol out of his position in life, out of his possessions, uh, perhaps even have it, uh, out of having control 
over his own life because if he leaves to follow Jesus, he's not going to be in control of where they go or where they sleep at night or what they eat. He's going to have to follow the rabbi, right? And so Jesus is putting his finger on the idols in this man's heart. Anything you treasure or fear or serve more than God has become an idol. Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones once wrote, a man's God is that for which he lives, for which he's prepared to give his time, his energy, his money, that which stimulates and arouses him, excites him, and enthuses him. And the fact is, beloved, Christians can still struggle with this, right? We look at the rich young ruler and we would say, well, well he's, by definition, he's not a Christian because he rejected following Christ when Christ asked him to follow. But in the New Testament, we learn that even Christians can still fall into the sin of idolatry. At one point in Paul's epistles, he tells one of the churches that greed is a kind, a species of idolatry. He says it explicitly. John, in his first letter to the churches, ends his letter in a way that I, I think a lot of us would think is a little bit awkward. He, he ends a letter writing to a, a congregation that he obviously thinks is majority Christian. In fact, as he writes to them, he's trying to help them. Uh, he's trying to give them uh, evidences they can look to that will help them with their assurance of salvation. And his final words in the letter are, little children, guard yourselves from idols. If Christians, if there's no threat of a Christian being given over to idolatry, that exhortation makes no sense. Clearly, the implication of the Apostle John's words are that Christians can still fall into idolatry. And so, the application for us is to be aware of the themes of our hearts and the things that we tend to give our love and loyalty away to other than Christ, and to repent and turn from those things. And maybe we could say it this way, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, a genuine follower of Christ, maybe we could say it this way, you need to repent small r, right? You've repented big r of living for yourself, living for some other philosophy or religion in life, but you need to repent small r of the idolatries you can still fall into. And then the third application, perhaps the simplest but most important, is this look to Christ, right? What you look at and re- what you look at and revere and love and adore, you will become like over time. Uh, the funny thing about mirrors, we have a mirror-like quality to who we are, and the funny thing about mirrors is that they need to be adjusted. They need to be realigned from time to time. Uh, I, it seems to me, it just feels to me like both my minivans, the mirrors constantly have to be adjusted before I back out of our driveway. So I don't know if like kids are playing in the van in between when I get in it or what, but like my mirrors constantly need to be recalibrated before I back out. And I think that's a picture of our souls. Our souls are the same way. Even after coming to Christ, our souls still need adjusting. We can still lose our way in the Christian life and go down these rabbit trails on our journey to heaven that get us off the beaten path where we're looking to romance or money or our own success and making those into idols, and we need to be recalibrated. Uh, I actually think that's one reason that the Lord has set aside one day a week for us to come together and worship Him. We need adjusting. Uh, The Sunday morning service, think of the Sunday morning service this way. It's not that we get our act together 
Monday through Saturday and keep the commandments so that we can walk into church with a feeling like we've earned the right to be there and worship the Lord, and and now we're going to offer Him something valuable with our worship. No, no, no. We don't think of it that way. It's the, the exact opposite. We come the first day of the week, Sunday, and get our hearts and minds and souls and passions and thought life realigned so that when we go out Monday through Saturday, we can honor the Lord and serve Him in the life He's given us. We recalibrate to put our trust and hope in the Lord on Sunday morning. We adjust from giving our hearts away to other treasures. We recalibrate our allegiance so that we can live out serving the Lord Jesus Christ in our everyday life. And so the application, the third application would be this, point your mirror at Christ by participating in public worship and in uh, congregational, the congregational singing we do, by Bible study, by regularly putting the light of Christ in front of you by privately reading Scripture, by also privately reading good Christian books that connect the dots from Scripture to life lived. There are excellent sermons. There are so many pastors who preach better sermons than me that you can listen to. Just don't start evaluating me by them because they're more gifted than I am, so it's just not even fair. Um, uh, There's podcasts. Oh, my goodness. The the podcast we have, there's plenty of good Christian thinkers doing podcasts. Uh, If you have a shorter attention span for reading, we got plenty of blog posts, you know, 500 to 1,000 words that are just quality on all kinds of different subjects. Put truth in front of you during the week that helps you see Christ more clearly and adore Him. We become like what we worship. And that's not just a warning from Psalm 115. It's also a happy promise from the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you give yourself consistently to the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ, over time you will come to share His moral image. You will begin to reflect His glory, but you can only reflect Him if you're looking at Him. And that's perhaps the most important of applications. Look at Christ as your great treasure. Trust in Him, hope in Him, obey Him, and you will increasingly become like Him. Let's pray.